I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So let me tell you a story. One night, Michael Connolly was walking home, and he saw a car pull over, drop something in the bushes, and speed off again. Michael slowly, hesitantly walks over to the bushes. He looks into the bushes, and he sees a handgun, and his life changes forever. Because going to the police station, watching the police investigate the crime, being interviewed about it himself, makes him fascinated with crime and the people who investigate it. And he's turned that into quite a career. Michael Connolly is one of the most successful crime fiction novelists of our time. He's published dozens of books, sold over 80 million copies worldwide, translated into nearly 50 different languages. Uh, he came up with The Lincoln Lawyer. Do you know The Lincoln Lawyer? Remember Matthew McConaughey played The Lincoln Lawyer in that, in that movie? Uh, Harry Bosch he came up with, the homicide detective uh, that ran as a TV show called Bosch on Amazon Prime for seven seasons, and, and the sequel's been on for two. Really, though, Michael Connolly is a book writer a crime fiction writer. And writing crime fiction is a dream he's had since college, since that night peering into the bushes. He was a police reporter for newspapers. I mean, he still considers himself to be a journalist. Now Michael is back with his latest Lincoln Lawyer novel. It's called Resurrection Walk. Um, This time, instead of convicting people, they're trying to keep innocent people out of prison. And we talk a little bit about how that changes the way he writes. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation. If you're not already subscribed to our podcast, please do so. Q with Tom Power, wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Connolly, join me over Zoom from Las Vegas. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Uh, tell me a little bit about how this story came to you. Um, I've had um, a small cadre of defense lawyers who have always helped me with hopefully the accuracy of the Lincoln Lawyer books. And um, so I'm always in conversation with them. And one of them was working on what's called a habeas case, habeas corpus case, um, just shortened to habeas. They always say habeas. And basically, those are cases where you attempt to get someone out of prison who has already been convicted. And uh, in the course of that conversation, he said, these are kind of wacky cases because they flip the the basic tenet of the American justice system and justice systems all around the world and probably Canada, that you are innocent till proven guilty. And he says, when you're doing a habeas case, your client is guilty till proven innocent. And just telling me how that flipped things made me want to go in that direction. Because when you write a series about a lawyer, legal thrillers, you ultimately end up in a courtroom every time and it can be uh, repetitive. So I'm always looking for a new angle of law, uh, a new way of building a legal thriller. And this this sounded like an, a new way to do it. And I was very interested in it. Plus, I had this guy who was in the middle of one of these cases helping me get it right. So that's that was really the start of it. What, what, what are some of the challenges when you when you have to write sort of in that sort of uh, way? 
writing from, as you, as you said there, going from innocent till proven guilty to guilty to proven innocent. What are, what are some challenges uh, that crop up that maybe you hadn't experienced before in writing these books? You know, so I very consciously in my thinking about this book was that this is not going to be a whodunit. This is not where he exposes who's the real killer, like Perry Mason or something. It's more of a, how does he do it? How does he get this person who's been convicted that he feels very deep, deeply that she is innocent? How's he get her out? And so then I have to build challenges to him. You know, you, you, you basically, you think the truth will win out, but it's tough sometimes to get the truth out into a courtroom um, because of challenges of the law and so forth and, and requirements of evidence and so forth. And so for me, the building of this book, uh, the biggest challenge is like, what are the challenges and roadblocks I can throw in front of Mickey that he has to find a way to overcome? And like I said, I have some pretty good lawyers, you know, kind of riding piggyback with me looking over my shoulder and whispering in my ear, this this would be a good thing to throw in front of him. So, so the challenges that that he faces are challenges that your your friends um, or your I guess your your piggybackers, these uh, defense attorneys that you know, these are real life challenges that they've faced in their careers as well. Not all of them. Um, for example, there's one where there's a crime scene recreation that, as Mickey pre- presents it in court, looks very good for his client. It kind of shows how physically she could not have committed this crime. And, you know, so it's kind of like a winning moment for him. But then the prosecution says, was this made with artificial intelligence? And they have to acknowledge, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And that has not been approved in the California, the federal courts in California. And so even though this is thing that that really kind of proves her innocent, it's technically not allowed in court. And to me, when that was concocted with the help of my friends, yeah, they're friends and piggybackers and 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 good defense lawyers, that was one of their ideas. That was one that is fiction, but is based on realistic situations that are that are coming into the courts right now. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up writing in uh, writing crime, a little bit about how you ended up writing in general, because I find the story really interesting about all the years you kind of put in before you started publishing your own crime fiction. I wonder if you could go back to the beginning. I've heard you tell this story before, but I, I, I was hoping to get it from you, about what happened when you were 16 and you saw this uh, package put in a hedge. Yeah, the running man. I saw a, I worked late at night as a dishwasher at a resort. I grew up in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale, and it was pretty much a tourist town. And I worked at a resort um, that did like weddings and stuff. So I often got out late at night. And so I was driving home on deserted streets and I got stopped at a red light. And I looked around because I was going to run through the light because there's just no cars around. And I saw this guy running and he he wasn't a jogger. Um, He was dressed in like regular clothes and boots and so forth. And I saw him strip off a shirt, an outer shirt. He still had a T-shirt on wrap something that had been in his hand that I hadn't noticed and then stick the shirt into a hedge as he, as he kept running and then he kept going. And so, um, when the light did change, I didn't blow the light. Uh, when it changed, I turned around, drove over to the hedge and pulled out this shirt and it was wrapped around a gun. And, um, then, you know, I put it back in there. I never, at that time, I never held a gun in my life as 16 years old. And I put it back in there and um, it's a long time ago, no cell phones. I went to a phone booth 
and uh, called my dad, woke him up, and told him what I'd seen and what I'd found. And as I'm talking to him, you start seeing blue lights lighting up the night as these cop cars start kind of descending in the in this area. And uh, you know, my my dad said, "Flag him down. Tell him what you did, what you saw." And so I led him to the gun. So I didn't see this crime, but apparently uh, a man, uh, what we would later call a uh, carjacking, had refused to give up his car, and he ended up getting shot. And uh, you know, the bad guy was the one I saw running. So that led to me being all night in a police station, and they had picked up a lot. You know, based on my description, they had picked up a lot of people. He was running towards a, what what was a well-known biker bar near the beach. And uh, they figured that was his destination. So they went in there and grabbed a lot of those people. You know, I described a guy with long hair and a beard um, wearing jeans and boots <laughs> and a T-shirt, which is like every every biker in that bar. So it was a long night of looking at lineups. And um, so it was, it was a kind of a fascinating night. Um, ultimately, I didn't identify anybody. I didn't think they had them. And then that became a issue the detective thought i was afraid that they had him and it didn't end well actually but it but it left an impression on me and that from that point i started reading i wanted to read the newspaper to see if they ever caught anybody so i was reading crime news and i started reading true crime books and then i started reading crime fiction and one thing led to another about three years later i said i want to try to do this so if I, that, if I had not glanced to my left and seen that guy running, I might not be doing what I'm doing today. How does the how does the journal you ended up studying studying journalism at college and you uh, you took police reporting jobs for papers in Florida and then in L.A. I read a quote where you said your press card gave you an unfair advantage and an entree into writing fic- fiction. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean I had. You know, I had this, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. So when I decided, you know, when I was 19, I want to try to do this. You know, most writers like become English majors or, you know, uh, English lit majors. And but I was very specific. I, it wasn't like I want to be a novelist. I, I wanted to be a crime novelist, right. uh, you know, mysteries and thrillers and detective stories. And so in huddling with my father, he suggested, yeah, I go down the path of journalism and and that would put me in police stations and with detectives. And, you know, it's, it was a long shot situation, but this would be he, his idea was this would put you in a place where you can hopefully take that long shot at some per, at some point. What is what a smart move for your dad, by the way? Like what great advice to come from from your father? Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I mean, there is a kind of a hidden thing that I didn't know at that time, but. When he was 19, he wanted to be a painter, an artist, and he had gotten into a pretty good um, art school in Philadelphia, and but only lasted one semester because uh, he was married. He got married and started having kids, and he had to make a living. So he, he gave up his uh, creative dream to support his family. And so when his son came to him at around that same age and said, I have this creative dream, he was all in. You know, he kind of knew what he had given up. And uh, so he was very thoughtful and uh, in thinking about how to best get me into a position to do it. And, you know, and he also said, you know, and guess what? It is a long shot. And if it doesn't work out, this is a pretty interesting job you'll have. And so he was he was kind of right on on several levels, because I do feel that 
I've had two great jobs in my life, one as, as a crime novelist and one as a crime reporter. Bunch. Chief. God's name, Bosch, another one. What the f got me? How far along did the character first come to you, the Harry Bosch character? Well, I was, I was a reporter for 14 years and 12 of them I was covering police. And, and what that means is you basically talk to detectives every day. So I knew, you know, good and bad detectives. I knew very dedicated people. I knew very people that were very emotional about the cases they worked. And so I feel like I was taking something from all of them. And then, of course, I had the inspiration of, of writers that I, I wanted to emulate, like Raymond Chandler and uh, great writers of crime fiction. And then there's movies and TV. So, like, by the time I wrote Harry Bosch or put him together, the influences were myriad, real and fictional. And, you know, so I feel like I taken from everything. What was appealing to you about him? I understand that when you're talking about interviewing these detectors and reading a lot of Chandler and spending a lot of time with um, with detectives, you're going to pick up a lot. But the the sort of idea of like a um, a loner detective is is an interesting one to me. Like what was interesting to you about him? Yeah, it was that, I mean, the influences from Chandler and other, uh, Ross McDonald's, another big influence on me, they mostly wrote private detective stories. And that's a classic setup of an outsider looking inside at, at the corruption of the system. And that was intoxicating to me as a, as a reader. And that's what I wanted to do. But I had gone down this path where I'm not dealing with private detectives. I'm dealing with real detectives that work for police agencies. And, you know, I knew what that, you know, it goes back to the unfair advantage my press pass gave me. I was smart enough to realize, yeah, I love the private eye stuff, but I have this in. And so I should write about a police detective. And I can take, and I can try at least to take those aspects of the private eyes that I love so much. And that is an outsider. So I always, from the very beginning, I, in my head, I said, Harry Bosch is an outsider with an insider's job. He's just not going to feel comfortable um, carrying the power and might of the state, you know, a badge and a gun. And, you know, he's going to be good at what he does, but he's just not going to feel comfortable about it. And, um, you know, and so that was taking a little bit of Chandler and taking a lot of what I was seeing in my, uh, you know, my day day job to make him, to the reader, subliminally or subconsciously, know that he was an outsider. Like, you know, he's left-handed and it's a right-handed world. He, he smoked back then and you had to go outside to smoke. It's not because I'm a smoker or anything like that. It was just another little layer of this guy feeling like an outsider. What about the Lincoln lawyer character? What about Mickey Hollard? Trill, Laurel. Is that is that you? You're spending time, you know. So you're, on one side of things, you because I guess as a, my my friends who are crime reporters, you spend a lot a lot of time talking to cops, but you spend a, a lot of time talking to lawyers as well. You spend a lot of time talking to defense lawyers, to to, to prosecutors. Does the, the Mickey Hollard character come from that? 
Yeah, I mean, I had a, a very another lucky break, you know, like seeing the guy running and hiding the gun. Uh, my first roommate right out of college, um, we were both uh, reporters at a very small paper in a very small office, and we and we weren't paid much, so we we shared an apartment, and you know, it's almost like a foxhole buddy. We we're friends for life. And we kind of went our separate ways in terms of uh, he went back to school to become a lawyer and he became a defense lawyer. And he is the model for uh, Mickey Haller. He He's the Lincoln lawyer and he's the guy I go to, the one that I said piggybacks with me and looks over my shoulder. And so I had that kind of built in and, and I had the kind of relationship that any time of day at night or night, I could call him and say, what would Mickey do here? Or I need Mickey to have this happen to him. How do I get there legally and accurately? And so it was very, it was just really great to have that kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, research background at, at my fingertips. And, and so a lot of the Lincoln lawyer stuff, a lot of the anecdotal cases and so forth either come from him or his legal partner. He, he was in a two-man partnership and, uh, you know, brought his partner into helping me as well. And those two guys are really the ones standing behind the Lincoln lawyer books, but no one can see him, only me. I, I, I was going to uh, – he must be delighted. I mean, I would be really happy if I found out that Matthew McConaughey was playing me. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny though. Um <laughs> These guys, uh, you know, they were they're a bit older than Matthew McConaughey, but you know, Matthew McConaughey was smart enough. To, the first time I met him, he said, "I, I've done my background on you. You're not a lawyer, and these books have the ring of truth to them. So you got lawyers helping you, and I need to meet those lawyers." And that was cool. I mean, it was smart on Matthew's part, but then I got to bring these guys into the making of that movie, and they spent time with him. But the funny line was one of them um, carried a lot of weight. Um, and when they met Matthew, the first thing he says, you have a six pack, but I have a keg. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, and then they, they they got along pretty well. And I think Matthew comes off very real and uh, real as, in a, as a kind of a scrambling defense attorney in that film and and i think uh my my two pals my two legal pals uh were very helpful in that regard um i i wanted to ask a question about your relationship with these characters and, and i'll tell you what i mean by that the 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 crime fiction writers i've talked to over the years i mean the, uh, people like joe nesbo and 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 ian rankin you know they've talked to me a little bit when they talk about their characters they talk about them as if they're real people they know you know like joe nesbo will go like well the thing about harry is you know he it's like he exists he, in my mind he's somewhere even when i'm not writing the books he exists on his own he's in his office even when i'm not writing the books what what, what is what's your relationship like with these characters when you after you write so many books about them are they like real people in your life um not not really i don't i don't want to pop the balloon but (laughs) you know i've heard that that's a real romantic view of it and that's cool but you know to me it's it's more of a craft and and harry bosch is only alive when i'm writing about him It's, it's been a little different in the last 10 years when there's a tv show and there's an actor who is so good at playing harry bosch I almost feel like that's Harry Bosch. And now I'm just writing about, you know, Titus Welliver. Um, I was going to ask about that, like whether McConaughey is in your mind now. I mean, maybe it's different because it's your buddy. But 
McConaughey's in your mind now when you're writing about that character, you know? No, that never happened. And, you know, with Titus, yeah, I was writing Harry Bosch for 20 years before that TV show started. And so I really had a made up image in my head. And, um, and he, Titus, as good as he is as Harry Bosch, he hasn't physically re- replaced that. I still see the guy I made up, you know, 30 some years ago. Uh, but his voice is so good. And so I hear like Titus's voice. You here to see me screw up too? On the contrary, the department exonerated you. They had to. It was a good shooting. And that's that's probably more important than how I see him because I don't really describe Bosch a lot. Uh, but the dialogue is extremely important. So the fact that I'm hearing Titus's voice probably says something there. Um, with with Mickey Haller, I I don't see Matthew. I mean, Matthew did a wonderful job. And I love that movie, but he's got, you know, his Texas twang and things like that. And, you know, the guy in the book is Mexican American. And so um, Manuel, who's playing Mickey in the, uh, in this Netflix show is more closer to the guy in the book. The Lincoln lawyer, that what they call you? Some do, yes. Or did. Why? Mainly worked out of my car. Going from court to court, all the driving and so forth. Being on the ready to flee the jurisdiction if need be. Never fled the jurisdiction. Have a seat. Um, He's a little more polished, um, but part of the joy of writing this stuff is you build stuff in your head, and it's very hard to supplant it with somebody else. And so I I can't realistically or, or honestly say that I see any of these actors as my characters. But that's not to say they have not done a fantastic job. All three of these guys who have played my characters, I I love their performances. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. More of my conversation with Michael Connolly coming up. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Hey, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the crime writer Michael Connolly. Um, Michael Connolly is the guy behind characters like The Lincoln Lawyer and Harry Bosch. So a couple of things uh, about this next part of our conversation. One, have you noticed that true crime has never been bigger? Like, true crime is a really old form, but between podcasts and documentaries and books, and I was just reading over the weekend about, like, conventions, it's a really great time to be in true crime and in crime writing right now. Michael has some really interesting things to say about what it might say about us as a society that true crime is really big right now. The second thing you got to know is, uh, for whatever reason, and this is kind of spooky to me, to be honest, a couple of days before I spoke with Michael Connolly, I was just, I don't know, I was on the internet doing some stuff, and I happened to read this essay from 1944 from the legendary crime novelist Raymond Chandler. It's called The Art of Murder. 
Even back then, Raymond Chandler, who was Michael Connolly's hero, by the way, was talking about how crime fiction doesn't get the respect it deserves from people compared to, like, you know, serious fiction. And I wanted to ask Michael about that, and I got to say, his answer really tickled me. Here's the rest of our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about perception around around crime fiction. I mean, at a time when I think there's never been a better time to be writing about crime, you know, most of the most popular TV shows in the world are about crime. True crime podcasts are always seem to be at the top of the podcast charts. I want to talk about why that is in, in, in just a second. But before we turn the microphones on, I, was, I mentioned to you I was reading this essay by um, Raymond Chandler. I mean, your hero, Raymond Chandler, The Simple Art of Murder from 1944. I just happened to be reading it the other day. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure why it crossed my uh, phone, but it, it just kind of came across me. And he, even then, back in 44, he was defending the crime novel as a serious art form. I'm going to read a, a, few, a few of the lines of the piece, the first few lines. The detective story, even in its most conventional form, is d- difficult to write well. Good specimens of the art are much rarer than good serious novels. Second-rate items outlast most of the high-velocity fiction, and a great many that should have never been born simply refuse to die at all. Does that still ring true to you, regards to like what Chandler's saying there about how crime fiction is perceived versus so-called serious fiction? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it doesn't bother me. I mean, it's kind of like the people who love this to write it and the people who love to read it, are they know the secret that this there is some high resonance in, in a lot of this work, a lot of these stories and, you know, the, the framework of a crime investigation can, can allow the writer and therefore the reader to go anywhere they want to go. I mean, that's right out of the, that hit that essay, the, the detective has to pierce all veils of society. And so it's, it, it, to me, it's, it's a framework that is being discovered by more and more really good writers. And I think a lot of serious fiction is, would be classified as crime fiction. Um, and it doesn't bother me that I think the critical community hasn't caught on to this or is steadfastly refusing to acknowledge that. That That's fine. I mean, just look at the, as you just said, look at the bestseller list, look at the most popular shows and the podcasts. The world knows this, whether the critical community catches up to it ever doesn't really matter to me. Um, I always come back to this great quote from Kurt Vonnegut, who at one point said that science fiction and mystery books often end up in the bottom drawer of the critic's desk. And it's also the drawer they most often mistake for a urinal. And that, And I think that nails it. But at the same time, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, uh, well, Chad Kruger from Nickelback was asked something like that one time about, you know, what do you, you know, what do you think about the critics' uh, lack of lack of critical attention on your work? And he said, "This is anecdotal," but he said, "I stopped thinking about that thirty million records ago." Yeah, I mean, there's another great one. As Richard Price, who is a very gifted um, literary writer, but he most often writes a, about a crime. And I read an interview with him or a profile. And I think it was in a like a New Yorker or a Vanity Fair, something, some, some kind of. I don't want to. I highfalutin is is. I don't mean to be uh, disrespectful of the publication because oh, I read them, but they basically baited him and said, "Why does a guy with your talent write about crime?" And he, and he, his answer was, "When you circle around a murder long enough, you get to know a city and a society." And 
that nails it as well as Vonnegut does that, you know, there is an importance, not every book that's in the classified as mystery is, is of, you know, reaches a higher level or anything like that. But there is an importance to a lot of these books in terms of reflecting what's going on in our world. You know, the other aspect of this is a lot of these are very contemporary. My books are set in the year they're published. And that allows me to reflect on what's going on in society right now. And that, to me, is a great advantage. Well, just to stay on that, what do you make of the heightened appetite for crime stories these days? I mean, you must you must notice it. Yeah, I noticed it, but I don't know, you know, I don't know I have an explanation for it. I mean, I think there's a lot of them. You know, probably every every year, every era people thought this, but, you know, it's a pretty, it seems like it's an ever increasingly complex world. And so one thing that's in these show, uh, shows, uh, books, whatever, podcasts, is they usually lead to a conclusion. You know, they, they, they go from chaos, a moment of violence or, or whatever the crime is, and they end up with this is what happened. And along the way, you ha- usually have, and this is whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you usually have someone who is relentless in their pursuit of this hidden truth. And that, you know, uh, the pursuit of a hidden truth is a pitch over the plate to anybody. You know, that's, there's there's something intoxicating about that. That's why I write these books, because I got hooked on that myself, you know. And when I was 16 years old and I was assigned to this detective who was trying to figure out what happened and who shot this guy in his car. Um, you know, so I got hooked back then and I'm still hooked. And I just think... I'm I'm an everyman. I'm not, there's nothing special about me. I just think what motivates me and hooks me is 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 almost universal. But before we go, the one thing that Harry Bosch and Mickey Holler have in common is a love of music, in particular a love of jazz. We like to play a song after every one of our interviews uh, here on the show. Is there a piece of music that you can recommend that makes you think of these characters that maybe we could play? Yeah, there's a, a jazz saxophonist, a late, he, he no longer alive, but his name's Frank Morgan. And he does, he's done it on a few records, a few of his records, a song called Lullabies. It only lasts a minute. But to me, that's that's Harry Bosch's theme song. When I heard that song, it's like very sad. It feels sad. And it also feels re- very resolute. And, and those are aspects of the character of Bosch that I think are, are a key part of his makeup. And um, for a long time, I can't say I do it all the time. I used to play that song every morning before I started writing. It was kind of like raising the flag, you know, uh, the Harry Bosch flag. Now I'm writing about him. Um, well, I will, we're, we're going to play that right now. Michael, what a joy uh, to get the chance to talk to you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me.
be honest, you never really know how fruitful that question is. Like, hey, is there any song that, you know, is, is reminds you of your character or something like that, you know? And But what an answer for Michael Connolly to listen to this song every morning when he was getting ready to write that character, Harry Bosch. That is Frank Morgan and Lullaby. Before that, my conversation with the best-selling author Michael Connolly, his latest Lincoln Lawyer novel, Resurrection Walk, that also features Harry Bosch, is out now. I've been on TikTok a lot recently. I don't know if you have. And the thing that keeps on showing up on my TikTok is stand-up comedy. And the trend I've noticed in the stand-up comedy that's really big on TikTok right now and the stand-up comedy that's really big on Netflix right now is that it's effortless or it, it seems effortless. The truth, of course, is very different. Stand-up comics spend weeks, months, years refining their jokes into the effortless thing you see on a stand-up special. So how does a joke go from an idea to the finished product? Gavin Matz is about to break that down for you to set up one of his jokes. He's a Canadian comic from Vancouver. You might have seen him when he won Canada's Top Comic in 2017. He's been on Conan O'Brien. He's been on Comedy Central. He has a brand new special out now called Progression. It's available everywhere on YouTube. And we talk a little bit about his special. We talk a little bit about his decision to move to the States. And yeah, he, he sets up his joke. Here's Gavin Matz. Gavin, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Tom. So you and I have connected online before because we had Rami on, and what happened? Yeah, you had Rami Yusuf on, and I, that was like during the pandemic, like the very beginning, and I was staying at his house because I got stuck out in L.A., and my mom sent me a care package with like Canadian snacks, you know, like uh, Hawkins cheesies that I love, yeah. and all-dressed ruffles, and uh, I guess he was on the program talking about how he loved all-dressed chips, kind of pandering to Canada, you know? <laughs> And uh, and then I had come home from, and he had eaten all, all of the all dressed ruffles, and also did not give me a shout out on cue, which I've you know always wanted to be on. But so so yeah, just just a bit of a just a little bit of a fib from Rami there. I but, feel uh, I feel like you reached out to me after that. I feel like you dropped me a line on Twitter or something back when I was on Twitter, and you were kind of like, hey, that was me. Yeah, I was. I was. I was also mad at him. You know? <laughs> Well, you know, we can get you, we can get you another, but we can get you a sponsorship at this stage, for God's sake, you know. I, would, I mean, I would love one. Uh, a dream. How are you doing in the U.S.? What? Because you were doing really well as a comic in, in Vancouver. You won the the next top comic we were just talking about, and then so you, what brought you back down to the states? Uh, well, you know, I, I I went I moved to the states after I won top comic in 2017 um, because you, you know you win Canada's top comic, but the the problem is you know for some reason Canada doesn't actually know that. <laughs> So you kind of, you kind, and that's kind of an arts issue in Canada, and and so you kind of have to go, uh, you know, to to America where 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 you can do things like Conan and and and, and stuff like that. Are you, do you get do you get um, skipped ahead in line a little bit in the states if they know that you did all right in Canada? Um, no, oh. not at all. They're they're like Canada's top comic. And uh, what's that? And you're like, well, it's on Sirius XM. And they're like, okay, that's a real thing. Uh, but not really. I mean, it didn't, I didn't really get any help in the States until I, I had like a Comedy Central set that I, that I did that came out. And then that kind of helped me kind of start to build stuff. So I'm glad, I'm glad you came on today to, to do this sort of like joke deconstruction on the show today. I know it's a comedian's favorite thing to do is to deconstruct their joke and tell you exactly why it's funny. So I really... <laughs> 
<laughs> just take all the magic out of it. I know I really appreciate that. Um, but it's a joke about Canadian and American healthcare. We're going to hear it in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, so talk me through a little bit of the inspiration for this joke. Where did it come from? Yeah. So, I mean, the inspiration for this joke is obviously a very obvious, like, you know, you move to the States, so much differences. And for me in my comedy, I've been kind of moving towards talking about systems and a way you can kind of talk about systems is like pointing out flaws. And um, I found the way to get into talking about healthcare is like, obviously it's like such a hacky kind of thing for Canadians to hear, you know? We're always hearing like, oh, you have free healthcare, you know? So, oh, you have free healthcare. Canada has free healthcare. And it's just kind of like comes up so many times where you're almost like, what? Like, why are you talking to me about this? And so, I mean, that is originally how I got into this joke is just like, I mean, like so many people being like, oh, you have free healthcare. Why'd you leave your free healthcare? They they bring it up all the time. Whenever I whenever I was just in the states this past weekend, and I was at like a after party for the show I was at, and they were like, "Oh, Canada," mm-hmm. and they and they were like, "Must be nice there. You can you can break your arm, and you don't have to worry about it." Yeah, you know, it's just such like boring small talk. Yeah, that, you know, it started <laughs> to annoy me, and then I was like, "Okay, well, okay, well, we have the system that's good." And you always want to talk about it, and then I was like, "Well, you have the system that's bad, and you agree that it's bad." But then that's always the end of the conversation. You know what I mean? There's no fix. And I was like, oh, that's funny. And then so what does America really offer healthcare wise? And, you know, that's how I got to the obvious, you know, make a wish thing, which is me pointing out, of course, how bad the American system is. That, I mean, I really, I really liked that point because um, I find whenever I'm in the states, I mean, I, I, just the other day, and I, and and forgive this person, forgive me if they hear this, I got one of these like GoFundMe from a friend of mine who's a musician who like you know broke his arm, and he can't play for a little while, and it was like, you know, yes. we're, we're, we're trying to raise one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and I was thinking to myself like, oh, they're trying to raise money because he has to take time off the road, and that's going to be hard, but no, it was like. He needs to get his arm fixed. Can you donate one hundred and fifty thousand yeah, dollars? And I was yeah. like, why don't you just, just let him get his arm fixed for free? I know. Well, I always thought, like, you know, if I ever, like, I mean, still, kind of, if I ever break anything, I'm just going to buy a flight back and just, <laughs> just, I'm just going to buy a flight back home, just kind of shaking and in cold sweats, holding on to your dangling arm as you go through the you know go through customs. <laughs> yes, as TSA yeah. pats me down and I scream. <laughs> well, listen, I feel like we've done enough uh, talking about the joke. I feel like people should hear it now. Okay. Do you want to say um, say your name? We do this when we introduce these things. Do you want to say hey uh, hey I'm Gavin Matz and this is the, this is a joke from my special progression? What do you think? Yeah, I'll say that. Hey, this is Gavin Matz, and this is a bit about healthcare from my special progression, which you can watch on YouTube. But whenever somebody in America finds out you're from Canada, which is you tell them. (laughs) (laughs) No, you guess it bad. Everybody always says the same thing. They always say the same thing to you. They're always like, oh, so you're free healthcare. Oh, your healthcare is free. Your free healthcare. They just say free healthcare. It's like, yeah, I guess that's not really what I was doing up there. <laughs> I wasn't pushing that through Parliament. Like, me and the Prime Minister weren't in cahoots on that one, bud. But it's free. It's cheap. I don't know. It, it's a better system. So I, it's not funny. 
you know, you have to explain that you're, it's not funny. Like, healthcare is funny in America. Because everybody's like, oh, it's bad. And then they're like, yeah, it's bad. And then that's the end of the conversation. That's what I think is funny, blatantly ignoring a flaw. Like, healthcare in America is so bad. That's where the Make-A-Wish Foundation was founded. That's funny. That's funny. Good news, bad news. So, your son is gonna die, but we could get him a FaceTime with Anne Hathaway. Yeah, we got Anne Hathaway on the line. She's gonna sing some Les Mis for Jaden. Hopefully that eases the pain of his stage four mesothelioma. Yeah, Jaden's got the mesothelioma bad at stage four. Only the musings of Anne Hathaway can help him now. Our bad. We didn't really consider many things. So we don't have a system in place. Thanks so much to Gavin Matz. Thank you so much to Michael Connolly. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so. Cue with Tom Power wherever you get your uh, podcasts. And uh, what else do I have to tell you? If you want to get in touch with me, I don't know about you. I think I'm thinking about New Year's, uh, New Year's resolutions. I think one of them is going to be to try and stay off the phone. But Q at cbc.ca is the best way to reach me. It goes into like a big thing and I'll, I'll see it. So please drop me a line. Q and I'll try to write back. Q at cbc.ca. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.